Hello, everyone, and welcome back to GWK, the podcast. I'm your host, David Dodge, the executive editor of Gays with Kids. And on today's podcast, we're going to be speaking with Lauren Jang from Spence Chapin about all things related to international adoption. So when gay men come to us interested in adoption, one of the first things we tell them is that there are three main pathways to become a dad through the adoptive pathway. So you can adopt a newborn domestically, you can adopt a child through the nation's foster care system, or you can adopt internationally. But the truth is these pathways for queer men are not all created equal. Most countries uh, with international adoptive programs, in fact, have outright bans on LGBTQ people or couples adopting a child from within their borders, which sucks, obviously, and needs to change. But um, there are also two really important exceptions to this rule, which we're going to talk about here today. And those are the two programs run by Spence Chapin in South Africa and Colombia. Both of these countries welcome international adoptive parents who are queer, and Spence Chapin, who is one of our partners to fatherhood, is really the only game in town if you're gay and want to adopt internationally. So if this is your preferred pathway, you're going to want to listen up. We will also talk today about a program they run that I'm absolutely in love with, and that's the Granny Program. So this is a program they're only running in South Africa at the moment, but it pairs grandmothers and some grandfathers, despite the name, with children living in orphanages throughout South Africa. These grannies provide companionship, care, and mentorship to kids who would just simply not have any or much adult contact otherwise. And of course, the grannies get a lot out of this as well, including a small stipend. So we'll talk at length about this program, its benefits, and how the GWK community can help. With all that said, this is also our last episode of season two, which is crazy. (laughs) Our uh, listenership continues to grow each and every podcast, which is fantastic. We love making it, so we're enjoying that you are actually listening to it. Uh, But we're actually going to take about a month hiatus off to regroup and figure out our lineup for season three. So in the meantime, help us show how popular this is becoming by liking and subscribing. Uh, Leave a nice review. These things matter. And then, as always, please drop us a line at dads at gayswithkids.com. Tell us how we're doing. Give us any feedback. Let us know about some ideas for season three. Okay, enjoy the conversation with Lauren. Hello, Lauren. Welcome to the podcast. Hi, David. Thanks for having me. Before we really begin, why don't you just uh, give us a little bit of a background on Spence Chapin, um, how long y'all have been around, and uh, just in how you kind of got into the business of international adoption in, in addition to your domestic programs. Sure, absolutely. Um, so Spence Chapin is a Hague accredited adoption service provider. We are licensed in New York and New Jersey. Um, however, we do place with families nationwide uh, who are growing their family through intercountry adoption. We've been facilitating uh, adoptions since the early 1900s, so we are past our 100 years of service. Um, wow, that's, that's incredible. And intercountry adoption is really permeated and, and weaved throughout the history and the work of the agency. Um, we did start back in the early 1900s um, providing actual shelter and homes to children who had been abandoned on the streets of New York City. And as that evolved, um, the founders, uh, Dr. Spence and, and Clara Spence and, and Dr. Chapin, they uh, did place infants who had been abandoned on the streets of New York into adoptive families in New York. Um, the history within our country began in the 20s, providing homes for children throughout Europe into families in the United States. Um, the standards of the Hague Convention came into force and the accreditation process associated with that in 2008. Although intercountry adoption really did um, increase in, in prevalence uh, following the Korean War, 
So across the history of intercountry adoption, there have been uh, countries that have had moments of higher placement numbers, um, Korea being a, a very prominent one uh, for quite a while, China uh, was long a, a primary placing program internationally. And now Spence Chapin is, is placing children from South Africa, Colombia, and Bulgaria. That's uh, that's incredible. I guess I didn't quite realize your full history. That's, that's <laughs> super interesting. So I think like within the world of adoption generally, um, if people are new to the topic or maybe starting to think about forming their family this way, international uh, intercountry adoption uh, is often front of mind. I think it's because it's so prevalent in popular culture. It's uh, yeah. you see so many celebrities, you know, like the Madonnas of the world, just you know, adopting um, from all over the world. <laughs> but uh, it is just something that's very uh, almost like pop culture in, in some respects. Um, but uh, but like you've said, the the actual uh, realities of intercountry adoption um, are different, and uh, if anything, uh, lessening over the years. So you've mentioned the Hague Convention. Um, can you talk a little bit about what that was and how it's had uh, the impact that it has on intercountry adoption and why it, it was passed to begin with? Yeah, the principles of the Hague Convention are really to ensure safeguards uh, for children and to make sure that intercountry adoption is only being um, planned in ways which promote the child's best interest as the core. Um, so it's a number of safeguards to ensure that children have um, pathways to permanency first and foremost in their country so that intercountry adoption is really looked at as a last resort for a child who otherwise could not be placed with a, a family in their country. So one of the core elements is the subsidiarity principle. And what that really puts forward is an ordering or a sequencing of um, options that need explored for a child. So we can't just jump to, you know, here's a child who's not being cared for by their birth family, let's place them abroad. We can't jump to that. We need to first explore options for that child in a very sequential order. First, efforts to be made to try to safely reunify that child with their biological family, whether that's providing rehabilitation services to their birth parents, uh, or whether that is exploring grandparents, uh, aunts, uncles, other kinship resources. If that's explored and exhausted, then efforts do need made, extensive efforts to try to find a suitable adoptive family within the child's country. And really this is to help maintain those cultural, linguistic, racial and ethnic connections for a child um, so that they can stay rooted in their community and their heritage. But that's not always gonna be an option either for a child. Um, the reasons that that might not be an option for a child are diverse. Um, some countries don't yet have a culture of adoption. Um, and so there are few domestic adoption options for children. Um, in other circumstances, it might be that the level of special needs that the child has or the age of the child or the behavioral needs of the child have made it impossible to find a domestic adoptive family. So inter-country adoption does have to be preserved as that last resort for a child to have that uh, permanent family resource. Um, so with that, we're seeing that children are typically placed at older ages, um, that they often do have a different level of special needs than we might have seen in the very you know, beginning times of intercountry adoption. 
So that is one of the, the most core principles of, of the Hague Convention. Other safeguards that it ensures are um, you know, matters such as ensuring financial transparency, ensuring that never is there an exchange of any goods or services or anything of value to entice the placement of a child, really making sure that we are able to assess that a child really didn't have another safe option. Um, not every country is a signatory to the Hague Convention. So if you're adopting from a non-Hague country, the processings do look a little bit different. Um, but actually more recently and quite relevant to the landscape of inter-country adoption today is something called the Universal Accreditation Act or the UAA. The UAA came into force in the United States in 2014. And to boil it down to its core, a very complex piece of, of legislation, um, it basically acknowledges that some countries are Hague signatories and afford those benefits and protections of Hague, and some countries are not. And yet all children are children. And so all children deserve the same protections uh, and safeguards regardless of where they happened to be born. Um, and so it implements certain standards equivalent to how Hague case processing is for even the processing from non-Hague cases. Um, and that's a, a U.S. piece of legislation. So that dictates how American adoption service providers have to oversee the practices in country, have to vet and verify providers, have to really look into the record of the child's history and documentation surrounding it. Um, and one piece that that has put forward is that all adoptions into the U.S need to be overseen by what's called a primary adoption service provider or a Hague accredited US-based adoption agency, which sounds like a really good protection because it does put that onus and responsibility on that US-based Hague agency to oversee all elements of the process. The challenge that it's brought about has actually been to narrow options and pathways for families who are hoping to adopt from countries that don't have large placement numbers. For example, if a family is hoping to adopt a, a kinship, uh, their niece, their nephew, who's living in a country that doesn't really frequently do placements into the U.S., that might create a circumstance where there is no U.S. agency who operates a program in that country. And so it gets a little bit more tricky to try to find a pathway for that type of circumstance. Right, interesting. So, I mean, so overall, I mean, I think if you were to look at a chart of international adoptions and the number that were taking place in the 70s, 80s, um, and then compare it to what you see now, I mean, it's a very steep decline. And, you know, just looking at that, you might think either the world, you know, community is turning their back on kids and needs, or maybe these kids don't have the same need that they did before. But I think the, the reasons behind it are actually, uh, on the whole, it seems like a very positive, um, uh, the, um, occurrence to be um, making sure that these kids, you're exhausting every option before, yeah, you're literally taking the, the child out of their home, their culture, their language, everything that they know and, and placing them abroad. So on a whole, a, a positive development in the in the world of adoption, you would say, but obviously with some lingering challenges. And you are correct that the numbers of children placed into the United States have dramatically fallen. We peaked uh, around 23,000 children uh, coming into the U.S. in about 2014, and we're down to about a tenth of that. So it has really, and of course, you know, there's there's COVID and there's different factors that, that sure. increase yeah. numbers, but it has been 
a trend of uh, increasingly fewer placements. And, and some of that, we hope, could be rooted in increased options in country right. for children, more domestic adoptions happening within their countries of origin. However, that is likely not the, the full of the, the story. Right, right. Um, so are there efforts to reform Hague to, or to, so that we can have like a more, um, you know, firm grasp or knowledge of what's actually happening to these children now abroad? Um, or is this kind of, this is what we have and we're kind of just moving forward with it? There are some conversations um, and actually some advocacy that's happening to create, um, you know, some nuances, some changes now that we have the lived experience of what barriers or what challenges have arisen, the kinship example that I, I just referenced. Um, so there is activism, there is proposals of legislative change, um, particularly actually for that that kinship caveat right. um, to try to, to make pathways forward for those types of families more clear. Um, of course, with right. all things, we, we might expect some time before any such changes happen. <laughs> well, and the kinship uh, example is interesting because I, I know there's also efforts here locally in the U.S. to make kinship adoption yeah. easier and not necessarily subject um, like an aunt or a grandparent uh, to yeah. go through the exact same stringent requirements that a foster care parent would have to go through uh, mm -hmm. in order to bring a child into their home. Because obviously, if the you know, it, even if it's not like the exact requirements of square footage you need in your home or whatever, yeah. it's, it could still be a benefit to the child to be able to be adopted. Um, uh, through, through kinship so this is uh, it's interesting that it's like a local process as well it's a it's a work in progress um well it's in, we haven't even been able to touch yet on so we you know at case with kids we have people come to us uh constantly super interested in adopting from this specific country or that for for whatever reason maybe it's uh part of their own cultural heritage maybe yeah. they've just been inspired uh by someone they know or something they've seen in the news um but uh, and it's you know it's pretty heartbreaking for us to have to tell <laughs> tell yeah. people that um, adoption for queer people is uh, is very limited when you're looking outside of the United States. Um, so can you just talk a little bit about some of the challenges that face the LGBTQ community when when they're looking at intercountry adoption? Absolutely, um, and you are correct to say that there are challenges, and you know we hope that one day we get to a place that there aren't. But the reality is that there are special considerations, um, and unfortunately, more limited or defined options. Um, so when it comes to intercountry adoption, every country is sovereign. Every country is able to set their own parameters around eligibility for adoptive parents. Um, and those can be very wide. Um, you might see countries who have um, income thresholds. You might see countries who have um, length of marriage requirements. We even see countries that have requirements on adoptive parents' maximum body mass index. So just to give you the wow, range yeah. of all the nitpicky um, criteria. And unfortunately, many countries have said that their programs are open only to you know, individuals who are not LGBTQ. But we at Spence have really made it a priority to try to work with countries where, where they do serve all families and where adoption by LGBTQ plus families is uh, embraced, encouraged, welcomed, and practiced. So there are countries that are going to be an option. Um, the countries that we work with that are options are South Africa and Colombia. Um, both of these countries have really written into their legal framework the idea of family as paramount. And what that family looks like is not a relevant factor as opposed to 
the love and safety and suitability that that family can provide. Columbia's legal framework actually has language in their technical guidelines. Those are the the kind of book of rules that oversee our practice from Columbia. They actually have a direct section that speaks to this idea that any argument that adoption um, from LGBTQ parents harms children is a wrong and incorrect argument. Great. Um, that and, that and it is, <laughs> and it is. But to see that in the legal yeah, structure no, ab- excites absolutely, us. Absolutely. And they really speak about you know, if anything, discrimination and bias is what harms children, and we need absolutely. to try to work to pr- to promote options um, in any suitable family. No, that's 100% true. And we were so thrilled to learn more about these programs uh, when we were starting to put together more resources um, at gayswithkids.com for people interested in intercountry adoption. So there are some options. Uh, literally, as far as we're aware, <laughs> they uh, begin and end with Spence Chapin and these two programs. So, uh, I mean, Lauren, you've been on numerous webinars with us uh, talking about intercountry adoption where we get questions from people asking, what about this country? What about that country? And, uh, and you know, so it's it's frustrating, I think, for folks because we're not ever able to say definitively um, that you absolutely cannot adopt it from certain places, um, uh, but because it, it, some, sometimes you're able to, and there is some like w- uh, wiggle room if you're a single queer yeah. person yeah. <laughs> and willing to like, you know, kind of uh, not talk so openly about your uh, gender identity or sexual orientation. Um, so, you know, there are workarounds, and I think in some instances, queer people have been able to adopt from countries all over the world, but mm-hmm. again, it's often individualistic. It's not always like, uh, it's mm-hmm. not written into the law like you're talking about in Colombia and South Africa that are uh, actively affirming of, uh, of yeah. queer people adopting from these countries. Am I getting that right? Yeah, that that is right. And, um, you know, fortunately, I don't think South Africa and Colombia are the only programs. Um, I do think there's a couple more countries that are are open and and hopefully more becoming open year over year. Um, But there's a really good resource. Um, It's actually the State Department's webpage um, because the State Department is the governmental authority that oversees intercountry adoption into and out of the U.S. They're called our central authority. Um, adoption.state.gov. It's their website that uh, speaks about the adoption practices. Um, And there is an option on there called country information. And you can type in any country in the world um, and they will give you not only the procedures of how adoptions are conducted uh, from that country, but they'll also give you eligibility um, criteria and standards. And so it is a big sift. but it's a really good resource if you have a connection to one particular country maybe uh you or or your family has ties to that country and you're you're hoping to adopt from that country you can that's a good place to start adoption.state.gov to see eligibility criteria yeah we definitely recommend the same website it is overwhelming there's a ton of information <laughs> right. on it, but it's it's impressive that yeah that it's as uh, comprehensive as it is so off the top of your head are you aware of other uh countries that maybe they're not quite as um robust in their programs as as, as Colombia and south africa but um others that um that are currently accepting or maybe aren't exclusively prohibiting um lgbtq people from from being part of the yeah. uh the adoption process um if I'm not mistaken, and I caveat this with if I'm not <laughs> mistaken, <laughs> I believe that certain states within Mexico hmm. are open. My understanding just from conferences and liaising with other um, agencies is that it's kind of like the U.S. a state-by-state um, right, right. driven process. I also believe Brazil is an option. 
So those are the ones that have just come to mind quickly from from cool. uh, networking with other agencies. Listeners will look that up to make sure that's I know. <laughs> Don't quote <laughs> Let, me. We'll say this. If you're hearing it on the podcast, then it's right. <laughs> Otherwise, we'll say that up. But I, I, I think I've heard similarly. Oh, uh, but yeah, so I, I think it is great that, you know, that at least the trajectory seems to be more and more countries being open to uh, queer people adopting. Um, and, you know, but like you're saying, each country is so different. And uh, we were talking a little bit before mm-hmm. uh, we hit record that, you know, sometimes it's um, a country will allow you to adopt by uh, like you can only adopt a certain age depending on your own age. And it gets yeah. you know, very into the nitty gritty about like uh, your uh, your background. Um, and it really does vary country to country. So um, so you will have to do some independent research. We're trying to make more of these resources available at gayswithkids.com. So check that out. Hey everyone, I just want to take a quick moment to talk about our recently launched GWK Academy. So this is a program we've basically designed around feedback we've received from our community who said that despite all of the amazing webinars and articles and videos and podcasts that we've created over the last few years and thrown at you all, uh, that people could really just use a little bit more one-on-one mentorship and uh, hand-holding honestly through the process of becoming a dad while queer. So GWK Academy, this 90 day program will help you decide on which path is best for you, whether that be surrogacy, adoption or foster care. We'll talk about all the many steps involved in each pathway. We'll talk to you about ways that you can help afford it. Um, And then we'll most importantly connect you with professionals who are not only leading experts in their fields, but are also passionate about helping the queer community specifically become parents. And this includes experts from uh, places like Spence Chapin. And it's also thanks to many of our partners that we're able to offer this 90-day program for just $99 at the moment. We want to keep this as affordable and as accessible to as many queer men as possible so you can get access to this really critical information that will help prepare you to fulfill that dream of becoming a dad. So if you're hoping to become a dad, check out the link that's going to be listed in the corresponding blog post that's going to go along with this podcast. Or you can just go directly to gayswithkids.com backslash GWK hyphen academy. And if you're already a dad, I bet you know someone that's thinking about it. So please do us a favor and pass this information on. We're very excited about it. We truly think it will help more queer men out there fulfill their dream of becoming a father. Um, And with that said, back to our conversation with Lauren. So now I want to talk a little bit more about um, a program that we're just in love with at Gays with Kids. Uh, we've done an article on it, um, which I'll uh, encourage people to go check out. But it's around uh, what you're calling the Granny Program uh, that's currently active in South Africa. So can you just talk a little bit about what this is? Yeah, absolutely. The Granny Program is a humanitarian aid program um, that Spence Shapin runs on a very simple premise. Children need nurture. Children need an adult who they can look to and know that that's their person and know that that's their caregiver. And unfortunately, children who are living in institutional care, uh, which you might be more familiar with the term orphanage, um, they don't have that individualistic care that you would see in a family setting. Um, Despite, you know, any caregivers in an institution wishing to give all the love in the world, they just can't. The ratios don't allow for it. If you have two caregivers to 30 children in an institution, those caregivers are not going to be able to attend to those social emotional needs of the child, but purely they're going to attend to the physical needs. Um, So the granny program um, is designed to give that attachment figure. It's designed to give that one-on-one care to boys and girls living in an institution. Um, So 
We call them grannies because most typically the the people who have the time and and who uh, give themselves to this program typically are retirement age women. Although we do have younger grannies and we have grandpas. Um, so say where the grandpas. <laughs> <laughs> we have some. They're rock stars. Um, so the grannies are recruited from the local community, which is important. They share the linguistic, the ethnic, the cultural heritage of the child. And each granny is paired with just two children. And that granny comes into that orphanage, that institution, five times a week for four to five hours a day. Wow. And just loves on that boy or loves on that girl. And they read and they sing and they dance and um, they engage in what a parent would engage in with their child. They make eye contact. They kiss. They say, I love you. Um, They teach the children to walk. Um, Anyone who has helped a child learn to walk or witness that knows it requires hand-holding. It requires an adult who's able to give that time and that interest in that child's development. And so the grannies really are a pivotal part of that child's world. The children light up (laughs) when their grannies walk into the institution. Um, And the grannies are able to fill a role that a parent would in many ways. If you are a parent to a child and that child has a physical therapy appointment, you go to that appointment and you learn skills. Maybe the physical therapist teaches you a certain stretch or a massage or an exercise that you can do at home. Well, the grannies go to those appointments and they learn those exercises and they apply them at home. Um, And so we're seeing that children make leaps and bounds in their development, whether that's gross motor, fine motor, social, emotional, cognitive, linguistic, Um, because they're getting that adult attention. Um, They're able to explore their world and feel safe and empowered in new ways. Um, So right now, we are thrilled to be serving over 150 children who are living in four institutions across South Africa. Um, And this, this program is not connected to to goals of adoption. The program is purely to serve children who are living in institutional care for however long they are there. So some of those children might return home to their birth family, uh, whether that's birth parents or extended family. Some children might get adopted domestically. Some children might uh, be able to go on to foster care placements. Some children might be adopted internationally. None of that's relevant. Uh, to the program. It's simply if you are a boy or a girl who is living in the institution, you deserve a granny and we'll bring that granny for you. Um, And so we actually have children as young as infants all the way up to 20 year olds, so young adults. Um, And of course the interactions, the framework of what those relationships look like evolve with time and age. But we, our grannies are helping our teens and tweens talk about career aspirations, talk about social challenges in the school environment, bullying, relationships, dating, um, helping them with their homework, um, you know, playing soccer and otherwise just having recreational moments with them. Um, and it's really been transformative. We love the program here, um, and you know I think it just speaks so highly to you know so the the trope within 
um, the LGBTQ community about uh, needing, uh, or sorry, outside of our community of people's uh, insisting that you need, you know, a man and then a woman to raise a child, this kind of nuclear idea of family, and that's like the best way. And this is, you know, the r argument that's been used against our community for forever um, uh, as to why we shouldn't be parents. But, the, you know, I think this, what we've known for forever, and I think it's proven through our experience and also just through um, uh, watching adoption and foster care locally here in the U.S. is like, it really is just, it doesn't matter who you are, what your connection is to a child, whether you're biologically related or not, whether you have a partner that's the same sex or not, yeah. whether you're single, it's really just the uh, having a loving adult, a loving presence in a child's life is what makes the biggest impact. And we see this in like uh, in the uh, foster care system here. Mm -hmm. I think there's similar programs where people will try to place uh, mentors with, with children in the foster care system that might be living in a group home setting that don't that kind of lack that same sort of um, uh, adult figure and, and just the impact that that can have to know that you have an adult that you can rely on in a loving way uh, is so incredible. So it's, it's, yeah, we're big fans of this program. Um, and, you know, so over the summer, there was a fundraising effort to potentially um, uh, to help the South Africa program, but also to potentially see if you could be moving it to Colombia. So can you, uh, can you talk a little bit about how that effort went and where you are in the process of maybe launching the program also uh, there? Yeah, no, we're we're very excited about that that opportunity, and um, you know, as we just spoke about, our, our history in Colombia runs deep, um, and we have had some really great conversations with um, children's homes there about the program. That's incredible. So, yeah. and so for those listening at home, this is obvious. These are programs that are not in the U.S., and most of our listeners are here. Although you know, we're we're um, all over the world. But so, how can people hearing this, because, uh, you know, it's, it's very inspiring to hear um, about this program and the role that it's playing. And again, I think the fact that it's uh, divorced from any sort of, um, you know, intention to adopt, that it really is just about making sure that these children have that loving figure in their in their lives is so powerful. So how, how can um, people listening at home uh, support this program? Well, if folks are, you know, interested in, in donating and making a contribution, they're absolutely welcomed to. Um, and really... where would they go to do that? Because I'm gonna, we're going to prod our listeners to do the exact. <laughs> <laughs> where can people donate to the program? Um, absolutely on our site, uh, spence-chapin.org. Um, you can navigate right to it. So if someone's listening to this and becomes interested in adopting from either Colombia or South Africa, uh, and they hear about this granny program, um, so you know, so let's say that the, a child ends up placed here in the United States or in Europe or outside of uh, mm -hmm. these countries of origin. Um, can you talk a little bit about like what kind of relationship has been able to be maintained for children that um, had these grannies and then you know were removed from them because obviously that could potentially be um, yeah. a, a, you know a problem for these children or a, a, at least a, an initially like emotional uh, yeah. process obviously <laughs> I mean full adoption I think is obviously the goal here but absolutely um, and we want to be able to maintain that continuity of, of relationship for a child to have trusted and loved that granny, um, it's important for that person to stay a part of their life even after adoption so that that child knows that they weren't, you know, handed over and not never thought about. That's not true. These grannies think about these children like their own son and daughter. Um, so there's a few ways that that is maintained. One is even just building direct contact between the new adoptive parent or parents uh, and the granny. So when families travel for the adoption, uh, we ensure that they have an opportunity to meet with their child's granny. That also helps the child 
have a sense of safety and stability in a very life-changing moment. A child is being handed to a new parent and being asked to trust that new parent who is a stranger to them. And so it's really important that that granny who the child trusts can show the child that she or he, if it's one of our grandpas, um, trusts these new parents and sees them as safe and is telling the child that this is okay, I trust this, um, and can spend time together facilitating that transition. We also have had um, you know, videos from the grannies that the adoptive parents can have for life and therefore the child can have for life to look back on and see that they were loved and see that there was somebody who cared about them and was there for them every day. Um, and then in some instances, there are actual, you know, sustained WhatsApp video chats um, or Zoom chats um, or Facebook exchanges to maintain that contact. These grannies love to get updates and hear how the children are doing. And it really means a lot to the parents and children to, to maintain that relationship. So thank you for, for highlighting that. It is a very important um part of the program is is maintaining the relationship in a sustained way. No, that's great. That's great to hear. Um, and I, I guess just lastly, let's say someone is listening to this and they become inspired to, you know, look for a granny program here locally. So, you know, like I was saying um, earlier, the, it's, it really is coming down to the connection that children can have with an adult. And, um, you know, there are plenty of opportunities and need right here locally in the U.S. Uh, with children in foster care across the country also lacking this sort of um, uh, connection to uh, to an adult that is looking after them in this way. So any advice you give to someone that is looking for ways to get involved and help out locally? Absolutely. Um, so I think a program that many folks have heard about, um, but which certainly does deserve a uh, recognition in this moment is the Big Brothers, Big Sisters program. Um, there also are a number of children who, because of their medical or developmental needs here in the U.S. are essentially residing in pediatric medical hospitals. Um, and those children, they might receive some visits from caregivers, from parents, from aunts, from uncles, but they spend a lot of time um, kind of alone at their uh, pediatric hospital residence. Um, so those might be opportunities if you're able to spend time reading with, um, kind of being paired with or, or mentoring a child who might have a different level of physical special need. I think that's something that uh, maybe doesn't get recognition or maybe people aren't aware of is something that occurs in the US that kids are spending um, basically residency status in, in hospitals based on their need. Um, so those are two kind of key opportunities. Awesome, great. Um, Lauren, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with us today. I, I learned a lot, I hope people at home did too. Um, and if you could just leave us with, uh, if people wanna learn more about Spence Chapin or you or your work, uh, where would you direct people to go? Um, so our, our website is spence-chapin.org, um, and through there, there's an entire page on the Granny program. Um, you can also see our upcoming events at our events calendar. Um, you can read about each international and domestic 
program, their eligibility options. Um, we also have a very active Facebook. Um, it's just Spence Chapin Services to Families and Children, as well as uh, Instagram. So there's a few ways to connect with us. Um, and awesome. of course, call our team. We're happy to, to speak about your individual family and, and help you uh, make any decision for your family. Awesome, great. And um, we've also featured Lauren and Spence Chapin on uh, several webinars about intercountry adoption as well as other parts of the adoption process. So um, also feel free to go to gazewithkids.com and, uh, and go to the international adoption section. You can learn more about it there. Uh, Lauren, thank you so much and I hope to have you back on a future pod. Thanks, David. <laughs>